The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me ask you to take your copy of God's Word and open with us, uh, open with me to the book of John, John 19. And we're going to look at a couple of verses this morning, concentrating really on one. John 19, beginning in verse 28. Um, glad that you're here. Uh, Greg asked me earlier, uh, in the middle of the welcome, are we going to answer any questions today? To which I quickly said no. I hope that's not true. I hope we do answer some questions at some point today. I hope we don't leave you wondering, well, what was all that about? I don't know. Uh, I hope we make it very clear that Jesus is the reason we're here, that all of us have been, been rescued by him in the gospel. If there's, if there's one question on your heart let that be the answer if the question is, how can I be made right with God? Let the answer be Jesus. Amen? Well, John 19 is where we'll be this morning. John 19. Let me read verse 28, and then I'll kind of catch us up as to where, where we are. John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scripture... I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his, to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We are right now in the middle of this series called Seven Words, and we're looking today at this fifth word of Jesus from the cross. As he has endured the cross and all that has come with it, he's there on the cross and he's given us these seven last sayings from the cross. Things that by all um, inkling of, of any kind of sense, we would think that, that if someone of Jesus' stature was going to communicate anything in the last little bit, that it would be important, that we should hang on to it. And so that's why we're focusing over these weeks leading up to Easter on these. We've looked so far at, at, at the first four of these, and, and I want to just remind you of what's going on. We like to think that, that Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, to give us an example of how we should respond when someone treats us in an ill way. But the reality is it's not so that he would give us an example. It's the fact that you and I are the ones who he's praying for. We're the ones who have mistreated him. And he, even there on the cross, is praying that the Father would be merciful and gracious in forgiving us. We like to think that, uh, that Jesus would never leave anyone behind, that, but, but that he's going to take everyone, bar none, to paradise. But he's saying to the thief on the cross beside him, when that thief was repentant and asked Jesus, remember me today when you enter your kingdom when Jesus turns to him and says, today you will be with me in paradise, it's a reminder and it's, 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 it's a clear teaching of Jesus that not everyone will be in paradise, but those who by faith turn to Christ, turning from their sin and trusting him alone, are the ones who will be there. We like to think that Jesus gave us an example of how to care for loved ones when he turned from the cross and he looked at his mother standing there, his earthly mother, and he said, behold your son. And he, 
gave her to John, and John, behold your mother, and he was entrusting her care after he would be gone on this earth to John. We like to think that he's giving an example to us as to how we should care for our loved ones, and he is, but there's so much more. The reality is we're the ones that he cares for and that he provides for. We have no provision. We have nothing good within us. We are lost in sin and hopeless if not for his care. He's brought us into a family, a family of God that he's pointing to there in, in giving his mother to John. There's the, there's the church as his main provision here coming out of the gospel. We like to think that Jesus knows what it's like to be forsaken um, and abandoned. Therefore, we can follow his example when, when we're forsaken. But the reality is, if we are trusting in Christ, the reality is we will never be forsaken because he was forsaken so we wouldn't have to be. I hope you see that in all of these, Jesus is pointing us to his sacrifice, to his provision, to his being the atonement needed for our sin. Today's no different. I want us to look this morning at this passage, John 19, 28, when Jesus cries, I thirst. We come to this passage and we think, well, you know, there's not much in this. How can the preacher really preach, you know, for 40 minutes or so on this one little verse of Scripture? Well, I can assure you that every week when I've come to these little verses of Scripture that I have been blown away at just how much more is there than meets the surface. When Jesus cries here, I thirst, I want to show you largely two things today. I want to show you first off that Jesus was human. And then secondly, I want to show you that Jesus was God. And by saying was, he was human and he was God, I'm not saying that he's not now. He still is. Jesus, even now, resurrected, is still in this human form at the right hand of the Father. Even now, Jesus is God. He's never stopped being God. And so I want to show you these today. Jesus was human and Jesus was God. First off is this. When Jesus cries, I thirst, does it not point to the fact that Jesus was to the point of sheer exhaustion? I mean, he's absolutely, all of us know what this is like. Some more than others, but you've worked yourself to the bone to the point where you're so worn out and tired and thirsty that you just can't get to water fast enough. You ever been like that? Summer's around here sometime. Last summer wasn't as, as hot as it has been, but summers typically here are extremely hot. Monday is the day I take off, and I take off from church work, but it means that I'm working at, at the house in the yard, and, and we've got this, you know, property that God's blessed us with, and I'm mowing, and I'm weed-eating, and I'm trimming, and all this, and, and there's a point in the day where I'm just, I'm, I've, I've sweated so much out of me that I just need to replenish. I'm thirsty, and it points to the fact that Jesus here experienced the same thing. He's human. Now, this, this verse 28, it, it starts with these two little words, and it says, after this, After this is when Jesus said, I thirst. So it begs the question for us to ask, well, what what does he mean? After what? Well, I think there's two things in mind here. Things float through the air here. Did you see that? There's something floating in front of my face, and the lights picked it up. Like a dog seeing a squirrel. I just have to go get it. Sorry. After this, after what? Jesus, I think there's two things here that he's pointing to when he says, I thirst. 
First off is this physical exhaustion. This, this physical ordeal that he has gone through. And I want to just recap for you just what Jesus has been through. Think back to Jesus prior to him being arrested, and he's there in the garden, and he's in Gethsemane, and he's praying, and he's wrestling with the will of, of the Father to take and drink the full cup of the wrath of God. He's there in the garden, and he's praying. He's alone. His, his disciples are in the vicinity, but he has left them, and he has gone off stone's throw, the Bible says, from them. And he's praying by himself. He's alone while they sleep. He comes back to them and he says, couldn't you watch with me for one hour? He's alone while they sleep and he wrestles with the thought of drinking this cup, the cup of the Father's wrath, this bearing of sin for the infinitely holy one. He's wrestling with this to the point of sweating, but not just sweating like you and I sweat, but he sweats drops of blood. And this is a medical ordeal that, uh, that has been known to happen. And what happens in, in this process, it's called hematidrosis. And what happens is the capillaries under the skin, they're under such, such torment in this, this ordeal that they rupture. And they begin to, to bleed under the skin. And this blood then mixes with the sweat and it comes out through the pores as this bloody, sweaty mixture. And this is what's going on here with Jesus. How many of you have ever sweat drops of blood? And Jesus here is going through an incredible ordeal, this physical ordeal. Not only that, but then he comes right out of this, and he, he comes back to his disciples only to see Judas coming into the garden with this band of men, all these soldiers with torches and, and, and weapons to come and arrest him. He was betrayed by, by Judas here. He's bound, the scriptures say, by, by the soldiers and the guards. I mean, this has been the most peaceful man that had ever lived on the planet. And, and they come in the middle of the night with, with many more people than it would take because he was submitting to all of this. And they bind him with ropes and chains and they, they take him. They take him before Annas, who had historically been a power player in the seat of the high priest. Now Caiaphas was his son-in-law. Caiaphas was the high priest at this moment, but they take him first to Annas, and before Annas he's questioned. And from Annas he's taken then to Caiaphas where Caiaphas the high priest questions him. He's struck in this process on the face by one of Annas' officers because Jesus doesn't answer the question in the way that he thinks that he should speak to the high priest. And hits Jesus across the face. Maybe it was a backhand. Maybe it was a fist. Maybe it was something else. We don't know. And then from there, from taken from Anna's house to Caiaphas' house, then he's taken to the Roman governor, Pilate. And Pilate questions him, but comes to the point where he doesn't really want to have to do anything with him. So he thinks, I can avoid making a decision about this man. So he has Jesus then taken across the city over to Herod uh, Herod. Uh, uh, Antipas and, and, and thinks, well, Herod will deal with him. And Herod questions him. But Herod quickly wants nothing to do with him either, so he returns him to Pilate. So he's marched back across to Pilate, all bound this whole time, and he comes back to Pilate, and Pilate thinks, well, you know, let me just do this. They want to kill him, but maybe, maybe they're just worked up into a frenzy. So what I'll do first is I'll just take him and I'll just have him flogged. And this flogging was really just this sort of beating 
It's not the beating with the whips that we see later on, but, but it's in this place where Jesus is taken into this room with these guards, and they, they twist the crown of thorns, and they crush it down on his head. And they take one of their old robes, it's faded, and it looks purple now, and, and they place it on him. And they take a reed, and they put it in his hand, and, and they kneel before him as if he's truly the king of the Jews. And they mock him, all while he's bound, and by now, sweaty and tired and bleeding, and they say, Hail, king of the Jews. And they stand up, and they punch him, and they slap him. And they have fun with him for a while, and then they bring him back out. Pilate brings him back out before the mob, before the crowd, and he says, Behold, behold the man. And Pilate then realizes that this will not be enough. They will not change their mind after seeing him ridiculed, but this will only incite their fury, and they will demand that he be crucified. And so Pilate has no other choice, but Pilate convicts him and sentences him to death. This man's done nothing wrong. I wash my hands of him. His blood be on you. Nevertheless, he's guilty. Go kill him. Jesus is taken from there, as all criminals were who were were crucified, and he is scourged. And this is where this cat of nine tails, these whips, are brought into place. And I've described this for you before, but let me just remind you again. this, This whip, small handle, Leather strands, pieces of bone and rock and metal sewn into the ends. And Jesus with bare back hunched over this stump. This, these whips are taken across his back multiple times. These bone fragments and rock and steel act as, as treble hooks and they just grab the flesh from his back and they rip that flesh from his back time and time again. He's carried, he, he takes from there, he's taken from there, he's, he's, um, he's has the cross placed on him, and he's forced to carry this cross through the city, parading along the longest route they could possibly take in order that he might walk among all the people of the city so that they might have opportunity to scorn him as well. And they would spit on him, and those that could reach him would, would slap and punch him all while coming through the city and all the while doing nothing wrong. When he gets to Golgotha, outside the city, as he's climbed this hill, this mountain, the shape of a skull, he's laid on top of this cross and he has spikes driven through his hands and his feet and he's nailed here to this cross. They take this cross and they lift it up and they drop it into the hole with a thud And for six hours, he hangs there. For the first three hours, he hangs in the sun of the day. We have no reason to not think it's sunny for those first three hours. But for the second three hours, it becomes dark. And it's not a total, it's not a solar eclipse. It's in the middle of the day. It's from noon to three. And because of the time of the year, it would be impossible for this to be a solar eclipse. This is, in essence, what one commentator described as God being just so displeased with what they were doing to his son that he just pulls back all light. He's all the while, for these six hours, laboring for every breath and praying for his enemies and giving mercy to the penitent sinner, to the penitent thief, and providing for his mother, being forsaken by God. And, and we come to this and we look at all this physical ordeal that he has had to endure in just a, a short number of hours. And we say, well, no wonder 
No wonder he's thirsty. No wonder from the cross, one of the things that he cries out is, I thirst. We understand that completely, but there was a deeper meaning that I want you to see beyond the physical thirst of this moment. He's not just physically worn out. As Scripture describes in the passage that I read to you last week in Psalm 22, it's not just the fact that his mouth's dry and his tongue sticks to the side of his jaw from physical exhaustion. There is a deeper thirst that's going on, and it is this thirst of the spiritual ordeal. Remember that what has just happened here, don't forget that he's just cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's not simply the physical thirst that he's pointing to, but when he says, I thirst, Jesus is pointing to the thirst for the fellowship with the Father that has been removed from him because he's becoming the sin bearer. Psalm 42, verses 1 through 3 says, As a deer pants for water, for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where's your God? Now that psalm was written probably around a thousand years before Jesus is here at this moment on the cross. But how aptly it describes what's going on. This psalm is is really written for his singer to, to lament the fact that he's being prevented from gathering with the people of God in the sanctuary to worship because there are enemies of God who are preventing him, keeping him from coming and worshiping with God's people. And so when we understand that and we then apply this to Jesus, Jesus in this moment has had the fellowship of the Father stripped away because of not His own sin, but because of bearing the sin of all those who would ever come to faith. And that's when this psalm makes sense. As a deer pants for flowing water, so my soul, God, thirsts for you. Do you see it? Jesus here is human, and in his human suffering, he's pointing to the thirst that comes from physical exhaustion. But not only that, he is pointing to a reality for all of us. For all of us who are also human, that Jesus' humanity shows us that we too, that we too have a thirst that goes beyond the physical that all of us have been created to long for and thirst after our God. We have been created to, to, to be in fellowship with Him, and our sin separates us from Him. I want to just show you here in this that Jesus is human, and what it points to is that, but it also points to this, that Jesus is our brother in suffering. Isn't He? You ever, you ever been around somebody that talks as an expert, even though they have little to no experience in something? You ever been around? You ever been that guy? Like, you know, you're, you come up on somebody, you lift the hood on a car, you say, well, I, I think it's this. Oh, they stopped putting those on cars years ago. Oh, well, I guess I was wrong, you know. Uh, you, ever, you ever been around somebody like that? You ever been around a, a college professor maybe who teaches or, or speaks in theory but really has no practical experience out in the real world? I had, a, I had a professor at seminary who was a youth ministry professor, but he had never served as a youth minister anywhere. What kind of sense does that make? 
He had all these wonderful ideas, but those of us who were serving in staff positions, working with students, we realized, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that that's going to work, you know? I want you to know that we don't have a God who speaks as an expert about suffering and life who has no experience in it. God himself has entered into our suffering. We have a brother in suffering. That's what Hebrews 4 is all about when it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So when you come before God through Christ, you're not coming to a God who's just all about theory, but who has no idea of what it means to live a life like you live. We have a God who knows because he made himself one of us. But like Jesus had this deeper thirst, we too have this deeper thirst that can only be quenched in God. I want you just to look around. Look around at the culture. Don't look around in this room. You can if you want, but look around at the culture and, and ask yourself, does this play out? Does, when, when Scott says that, that we all have this innate thirst for God, does that really ring true? Look at the culture. Is the culture not also crying out, I thirst? Look at what they pursue. They are never satisfied with the amount of wealth that they have, are they? Always wanting more. Always looking for the the next better paying job. If they have no prospects of a better paying job, they will play the lottery or, or go to Vegas or do whatever they can because they have this insatiable desire, this insatiable thirst, and they're trying to quench this thirst with something that's not God. They, they crave more attention than, than what they are currently receiving from other people. You see this by their statuses on their Facebook pages or their Twitter posts or their Instagram photos. They post these things and they, they're just posting them, just throwing them out there, hoping they can get more likes, you know, more retweets, more quotes. They're just hoping for this. They're, they're just not satisfied with the amount of attention that they currently receive, so they want more and they will do anything and everything to get it. The culture is crying out, I thirst. I'm thirsty, and I don't know how to quench this thirst, so I'll go after all these other things. They they look for it in pleasure. They're they're always thirsty for more. They count down the days. Have you ever done this? You've you've had a vacation or something else, an event that's supposed to be coming up, and, and you're counting down the days. And there are apps now that you can put on your phone, these countdowns. Oh, it's 43 days. It's 43 days till our vacation. And finally, it counts all the way down, and you get to zero, and you're on your vacation, and you don't know what to do, so you sit around planning your next vacation, right? And this is our culture. They're thirsty for more. Or you sit at lunch, and you talk about what you're going to have for supper. And you don't see that one maybe rang true a little better. With career, people are looking for the next best thing. They spend time, they spend money on education and training, yet So many never actually get a job in what they've spent all this time and money training for. It causes them to thirst. You see this in relationships. The culture moves from relationship to relationship to relationship. From one bed to the next bed to the next bed. 
looking to quench this thirst that exists, thinking that these external things will meet my thirst and they will finally satisfy me, to which Jesus shows us here that there is not anything that will quench this thirst but God. There is no physical thirst that that compares to the thirst that we have for our God. There's an aching void in the soul that can only be filled by God. Physical suffering, look, it's no fun. And I don't like standing up here as your pastor constantly reminding you that that coming to Christ doesn't mean that you're going to have this happy, joy-filled, well, joy-filled, yes, but this happy, nothing ever bad to you life. But living means suffering. Look at Jesus. Jesus is here suffering. Suffering's no fun. And it will cause you to thirst. But have we ever stopped to consider that maybe the suffering, the thirst that, is, that comes from this physical suffering here is meant to show us our deeper thirst for God? Jesus is human. The second thing I want to show you today is this, that Jesus not only was human, Jesus was God. Notice how controlled Jesus is in these last few moments of his life. I mean, look, look at the way this reads. I mean, who else dies this way, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. I mean, who dies like that, right? Let me make sure I've got everything checked off. Uh, yeah, I'm ready. I mean, who, who dies like that? This points to the fact that Jesus knows what's really going on. The soldiers don't know what's going on. They're being used as pawns in the playing out of God's plan unwittingly. When Jesus says, I thirst, and someone takes this hyssop branch and puts a sponge on it and lifts this sour, cheap drink of the soldiers at the foot of the cross to the lips of Jesus, they have no idea about Psalm 69. Yet they are fulfilling what God said a thousand years ahead of time. The soldiers don't know what's going on. The crowd doesn't know what's going on. They're mocking and they've missed the fact of Isaiah 53 somehow. The Pharisees and the scribes, even they don't seem to know what's going on. And someone asked me the other day, do you think they were feeling a little bit uneasy or convicted when all of this began to play out? I mean, they knew the Scriptures. They, known all, they knew all that had been said about Him. There must have been bells and whistles going off. Wait a minute. This was, this was foretold about the Messiah. Should we really be doing this? But even in that, they don't seem to know what's going on. But Jesus here after all of this ordeal and after hanging on this cross for six hours, is still in his right mind. And he's displaying the fact that he is God. While on earth, what are some things that Jesus did that shows to us that he was God? That he wasn't just a mere man, but that he was actually God. Did he not read people's minds? Did he not speak to sickness and disease and Just cast it out of a person's body? Did he he not speak to the dead and bring them back to life? Did he not look at a storm on the sea and say, shh, and have the storm stop? 
in so doing, is he not proving, is he not showing to us that he is God? And here he seems to be in complete control of even his dying. It seems that here we have another clear proof that Jesus was more than a man, that he's actually God. So how does, how does Jesus here know that all things were now finished? How does he know? How is he in this right mind to know? Well, number one, he is God. But number two, there's something that I don't want you to miss. That even though he's God, in his complete humanity, he had studied the Scriptures. I mean, look at his focus here. His focus is, when all was now finished... In order to fulfill the Scripture, he cried out, I thirst. He knew the Scriptures. And the Bible says that that he studied these. Luke 2.52 tells us that, that as a child that he continued to grow. He increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with both God and man. It means that he dedicated himself to learning. I mean, think about the one who was the Word. Submitted himself to learn the Word. A.W. Pink, um, who's dead now but is a, was a pastor, theologian, wrote a book that I'm using and preparing for these messages. He says this, The written word was that which formed his thoughts, filled his heart, and regulated his ways. I mean, think about that. Isn't that true? And Jesus was always thinking about the word. It, it, was, it was what shaped him. It was what regulated what he did. Pink goes on and he says the Scriptures are the the transcript of the Father's will. And that was ever His delight. In the temptation, that which was written was His defense. In His teaching, the statutes of the Lord were His authority. In His controversies with the scribes and the Pharisees, His appeal was ever to the law and the testimony. And now, in the hour of His death, His mind dwelt upon the word of truth. If Jesus, if, if Jesus, here's my point, if Jesus, fully human, but fully God, if He saw it so important that He would study and want to know the Word of God and hide the Scriptures away, then what makes us think that we shouldn't? This is how Jesus knows the will of God in this moment. I have to think that in this moment, part of what, part of what holds him here when he's wrestling in Gethsemane, Father, if there's any way, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. I can't help but to think that in that moment, he's recalling all of these verses of Scripture about the Messiah, knowing he's the Messiah, and knowing this is the will of God. God has said these things. He's written these things. This is His Word. His Word stands forever. If Jesus was God and He took time to study and meditate on Scripture so that He might know the will of God, should we not also? You see, we spend a lot of time, people spend a lot of time trying to discern and trying to know what the will of God is. How many of you would say, yeah, I'd like to know what the will of God is for my life? All of us, I think, in this room. You're hesitant to raise your hand, but I think all of us would say, I want to know. I want to know God's will for my life. We spend a lot of time and energy trying to discern what the will of God is for our life, yet we spend 
so much time pursuing other avenues to discover that when God has written it down. When he's written it down and it's clear. I mean, how else, how much clearer could you be? What makes us think that we can find and know God's will any other way? Lots of people want to know God's will for their life, but they, they're going after it in so many other ways. They're like most men. Most men who buy something that requires assembly. You get home, you take this box, and you, you cut this box open, or you rip this box open, and you, you pull all the pieces out, and there's this thing of paper over here. It's in a book form, you know, and you say, just throw that over there with all the cardboard and all the styrofoam and all that. That's just unnecessary. They put that in there. You know, no, I don't really need that. And then you just begin to take these parts and you just begin to put them together. You get to the end and you realize, how come this thing doesn't look like the picture? What's the deal with all these extra parts? Ah, they put extra parts in. Those are from the factory. You know, they just throw those in. And then you put your daughter on this bike. And she goes down the driveway, and all of a sudden, something goes clanking along. Dad, is that okay? Oh, it's okay. That was one of those extra parts, you know. You'll be fine. Next thing you know, the handlebars are up here, and the bike's down there, and she's crashing into the bushes. The reality is, you you see, I speak from personal experience, you know. (laughs) I, I, I don't want to equate the Bible as simply just an instruction manual because it is so much more. It is the revelation of God. But also in it, there are things that God gives us that are instructions, that are commands. There, there are things that are forbidden. And they're all here in the Word of God. And we as believers think, well, you know, God's my Savior and He's merciful and He loves me and He'll show me somehow. And we take the instructions and we throw them away with all the rest. And we wonder why this thing doesn't come together the way He said it would. Why it looks different and why there seem to be all these extra parts. See, in this moment when Jesus is on the cross, Jesus knows the instructions. He knew Psalm 69.21 was part of the plan. Psalm 69.21, thousand years ahead of time, says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And Jesus knows that up to this point, as he's on his way to Golgotha, they offered him, as he's on his way to the cross, they offered him this other Mixture, this wine mixed with myrrh that was a sedative, this poison that was supposed to numb the pain. He knows the first part of this Psalm 69 has, has really been fulfilled already, but the other part that gave me sour wine to drink is not. And so, even in this last dying moments on the cross, he knows this is part of the instructions. It's part of the plans of God. And he recalls, he, he thinks back through all that was said of the Messiah. And even in these last moments, he's in control to the end. And he doesn't seek to get out from under this. I mean, hasn't he in this moment suffered enough? Wouldn't we say that? If all that was left in your suffering was this one little obscure passage about sour wine to your lips, would you say 
this has not been done. This has to, this has to happen. Or would you say, I, th- I think I've suffered enough. I'm just not going to say anything and we're going to let this one just slide. See, the, the point I want you to see here is Jesus doesn't say, oh, we'll just let this one slide. Jesus doesn't say, I, it's, it's, I've suffered enough. I need to get out from under this suffering. I need to avoid it at all costs. There's, there's, what's, what's it going to hurt if this one little bit is, is, is evaded? Instead, Jesus says, to the very last drop, I will drink this cup. This is the cup that God has poured for me. And in this moment, I will not choose to pour another cup of my own choosing. But in this moment, I will choose to drink what he has set before me. Every last drop down to the grainy dregs in the bottom of the cup. He submitted himself to whatever the will of the Father had prescribed. Pink goes on in in his book and he says this, Had he chosen to exercise his omnipotency, because remember, he's God at this moment. He's all-powerful. He can do anything in this moment. Had he chosen to exercise his omnipotency, he could have readily satisfied his need. I mean, the the one who created out of nothing, could he not in this moment when he was thirsty even turn the oxygen that he was breathing, struggling to breathe, but could he not have even turned the oxygen in this moment to water? He had turned water to wine. When the children of Israel were in the wilderness, had he not made water come from a rock? Could he not in this moment have simply satisfied his own need? But even as the omnipotent Son of God He determines, I will not do anything that will take away from the revealed will of God. I want to just leave you off with with, uh, some application this morning coming out of this. Jesus was human. Jesus was God. So what we can deduct from this is that if Jesus is indeed our brother in suffering, And if he did not seek to get out from under suffering, but instead he, in the middle of it, took all of it and pointed to this deeper need, this deeper thirst that could only be satisfied in God, in being obedient to him and taking all that was his will. If Jesus, in this moment, that's the way he lived and played this out, then let me just ask you some questions. And I want to ask you these questions and I want you to be honest with yourself. Do you seek to get out from under suffering at all costs? We live in a culture that says, God wants me to be happy. God has never said anywhere in his word that he wants us to be happy in earthly things. He has told us that he wants us to be happy, but he wants our happiness to be found in him. That we would delight in him and his word that he would be our joy, that he would fulfill every need of our soul. But we live in a world that says, ah, God just wants me to be happy. And we spend all of our time looking for happiness in these other things. Do you seek to get out from under suffering at all costs? Or do you understand that God sometimes uses suffering 
to point to this deeper thirst that can only be satisfied with him? Do you understand that God uses suffering to conform us to the image of Christ? Do you understand that suffering, while it may not be fun for the moment, it lasts for a microsecond compared to eternity? These earthly trials that we will have to endure are nothing compared with the eternal weight of glory. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured suffering and the shame of the cross. Do you understand that Jesus uses suffering sometimes? Secondly is this, that do you want to know God's will? Do you want to know God's will? I've already asked you that. Some of you raised your hands. Others of you didn't, but I think you do. I think you want to know God's will for your life. Then let me ask you this. Do you know God's word? Because the reality is, there's so much here that God has already said, this is my will. Do you know his word? If Jesus spent time to labor over it, to know it, should not we also so many times we come to things and, that our culture says is right or wrong. We live in a day where the sands of morality are just shifting and crumbling out from under us all the time. And it becomes popular to have this opinion or it becomes unpopular to have this opinion. And, and we've got to determine, will we capitulate and follow what the world says is good and right or will we stand on the Word of God? Do we know the Word of God to be able to say that? If we look around and we look at how the, the family is being redefined all around us. That marriage is under attack. We look around. Are, are we going to, as the church, say, well, you know, it's just not okay anymore to have that opinion. So, you know, it's, it's pretty popular to have this opinion. And so if I want to be accepted, and if I want to have a voice to speak into this, then I, I probably should give in and I probably should compromise and I probably should you know, just, just go along with this for a while. I, I believe that's the will of God for the church in the 21st century. It's not what this says. In the last days, in the last days, they will heap until themselves Preachers and teachers that will say things to tickle their ears and to make them happy and to have the opinion that they would want to have. Will we stand here? Do you want to know God's will? Do you know God's word? Secondly, do you submit to God's word? It's not enough simply to know it. You can know it and you can quote it, and you can have friends that are going through certain things, and you can share with them verses, and, well, you know what? You know what the Bible says. All the while, you're giving them advice that you yourself are not taking. Are you submitted to it like Jesus was submitted to the will of God? See, Jesus could have come out from under it. He could have quenched his own thirst in an instant, but instead he stays up under it because he knows this is the will of God and he submits himself totally and completely to it. Where are you? Where are you? Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you you endured the cross and that you indeed suffered. And you pointed to this thirst that was so much deeper than a physical dry mouth. A dehydration of the body. But God, that you pointed to this deeper thirst that could only be satisfied in you. God, I thank you that you didn't seek to get out from under it, but instead that you drank every last drop of the cup, even though that in itself was what was dehydrating you. God, I pray that we would trust in you and your sacrifice alone. And God, that when it comes to living in this world as children of God, that we would we would follow your example and that we would seek to know your word and not only to know it, but to be submitted to it. God, you are better. You are better than all this world could ever offer. And God, help us, help us to not only know that in our heads, but God, that we would know that in the outworking of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to... to um, respond to what's been said. It's not the responding to this pastor. I'm not up here trying to get you to to make some response so that I feel good. It's not about that at all. It's about you coming before the Word of God. And what's what's shown to you there? And what what has God revealed to you there? And will you submit your life to that? What is His will? And will you say, yes, See, in this room, there are some who unwittingly play parts in the will of God, just carrying out the plan of redemption. That's really all of us at times. We unwittingly, we do things, we're part of things that we don't know that we're really intentionally part of. God's doing what He's doing. He's going to bring history to its end. But then there are also people in this room who have been given new hearts and new minds that are not simply unwitting players in this drama but now have been given willing hearts to join God in what He's doing. Where are you? Today, the Bible says that today you can be given this new heart. That you don't have to remain this evil, wicked one in the crowd or this unaware soldier at the foot of the cross, but that today you can be made aware and made alive by Christ. And the way that happens is you turn from your sin and you say to God, God, I'm a sinner. I'm wicked. I don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to be forgiven for the things that I have done. But God, I look at your cross. I look at Jesus there and I see that he died in my place. And so God, by faith, I'm trusting in him God, would you forgive me of my sin? Would you give me a new heart to please you and to join you? The Bible says that today you can be forgiven and made right with God. And if that's where you are and that's what needs to take place in your life, I'd be glad to talk with you. I'm going to be seated right down here on the front row. I'd love for you to come and just let's talk. If today you're here and you are already a believer, you already have this new heart, but boy, you've come to the Word of God and you've 
fallen short. We're all going to fall short there. None of us are going to be submitted to the will of God perfectly. Not in this life. God's working on us and conforming us to the image, but maybe today there's been some area that's just been shown to you that, boy, I have just been disobedient in this way. Today you may want to just, right where you are, just begin to talk to God and say, God, this is sin and it's wrong. And God, please forgive me. The Bible says, 1 John 1, 9, that when we do that, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today you may be here and this may be the church where God's leading you to join. Love to have you come talk to me. Whatever it is that God has made you aware of today, he's made you aware of that for your good and for his glory. So find your satisfaction in him. Respond with a favorable yes. Let's respond in worship to God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.